Welcome to the Evolve Move Play podcast, where we bring you the most interesting and enlightening conversations around movement practice and how you can become the most heroic version of yourself through pursuing movement that's relevant to your nature. This is a podcast that's going to feature some of the top movers in the world, some of the most amazing movement thinkers, and people from fields that are related to movement as far afield as evolutionary theory, strength and conditioning, and everything in between. So if you're interested in movement, please stick around. And if you like our work and want to support it, please consider supporting us on Patreon because this podcast is completely listener supported. We don't want to take any advertising. We don't want to interrupt your experience of watching the show. So what really helps us get the best thinkers on, have the time to put these together, have the best quality for you guys as far as audio and video is your support. So please consider supporting us and enjoy the rest of the show. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the Evolve Move Play podcast. So this week, my guest is Kate Galliott. Kate is the founder of Unbreakable Body and Fit for Real Life. Uh, she's a very experienced personal trainer, um, general thinker in the fitness space. She and I met at Paleo FX back in, I think, 2014. Um, and I was signed up for a newsletter and I've kept track of uh, her work over the years. And I really love the way that she articulates things and the way that she connects um, you know, her insights into a broader health perspective. So I didn't know Kate's work super well. I had followed her newsletter, but not dug as deep into it as I could have, but I ended up working with her at the embodiment conference this year and, uh, bring her as a speaker. And I really enjoyed her presentation and getting to know her a little bit. So I wanted to invite her on and have a conversation. I was extremely pleased with the way this conversation went. I thought it was a conversation that had a lot of depth and a lot of insight generated. And I just really enjoyed spending the time with Kate and I'm sure that you will too. So without further ado, Kate Galliott. So Kate, uh, welcome to the Evolve and Play podcast. It's great to have you. It's great to see you again. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. It's good to see you again as well. So your, your brand is called uh, Unbreakable, right? The Unbreakable Body. Did I get that right? And um, I, I wanted to start with like, what does being unbreakable mean to you? a great place to start and an important place to start because my journey actually started with a second website that I own that it's not monetized or anything. People just come there to read articles and learn things called Fit for Real Life. And I've been writing it Fit for Real Life since 2008. And I had actually been writing it as a newsletter since 2007 or six. Um, and because when I got into this notion of wanting to share more of my own journey and my own learnings as a coach and as someone who healed their own health in their body, um, I was quite sick when I was younger and quite unwell and struggling with my body. Um, everything I was passionate about when I like summed it up in a word or in a phrase, I, I admired people who were into fitness to um, win the triathlon or were into fitness to get on stage and do an aesthetics show of some kind or something like that, where there's like an end goal. And that didn't catapult me into anything. It didn't excite me. It didn't like drive me to go somewhere further. What excited me and what drove me and what really made me leap off into every other tangent I went into for myself and for my clients and my own learning was stuff that makes you more fit for real life, like real life stuff that you're doing and like, like everyday stuff and feeling good in your body and how you exist in the world. Um, that was way more interesting to me than any fitness simply for the sake of some sort of outcome. And so I was writing there for a long time. And when I finally was ready to like create something that I could connect to people online that I might never meet, because most of my work 
all of my work prior to the unbreakable body was in person coaching and owning a gym and things like that. Um, and so as I was building this program out and trying to think of like, what, what does this entail? Like, what does this encompass? Um, the, the notion came to me that really like when you're fit for real life, like it's not just that you're strong and it's not just that you're flexible or mobile or whatever you want to call it. And it's not just that you're fast or fit. You're able to be resilient too. And you're able to respond to every single thing that arises and you're able to take every situation, both environmentally or, um, in your time, like if you're too busy for certain other things, or if you're dealing with an internal environment, like um, willpower issues, and you're like just really not sticking to these goals you set for yourself, any number of things that can arise, someone who is fit for real life, it's because they're unbreakable. You know, um, Nassim Taleb talks about anti-fragile, which I really like, um, and the whole notion of like, the opposite of fragile is not strong, it's anti-fragile. And unbreakable is probably a cousin to that word. Um, but when you build your unbreakable body, you're, of course, building your, your physical body to be able to sustain a great array of stuff that could come your way, both intentional or not, you know, like tripping over a kid's toy or, you know, um, falling off a horse if you're going riding or something like that. Um, but also all the other stuff that comes up, like how you approach your physical practice and how much rigidity you apply to that and how much um, you focus on your internal like mental landscape and your relationships with other people and how you're sleeping and like everything about being a human who is fit for real life is encompassed in becoming unbreakable. And so my program and subsequent website from, that was birthed out of that is called The Unbreakable Body. And their folks, they always are there because they are starting at the physical thing, of course. And my goal is always to get them to take the physical thing and start to grow all of the other aspects of becoming unbreakable um, in that. So for instance, I grew up being very driven um, with sports and fitness and all that kind of stuff. Um, but it also had lots of threads within it of control and force and um, kind of like, God dang it, body, you're going to do it whether you like it or not, like that kind of force. And I was seeing all of the challenges that came with that. I wasn't initially equating them. I was just like, well, that's just how it is. You have to force yourself to do all of this stuff and be really hard on your body. Um, but as I started to kind of have my own awakening that brought me to where I am now, I started realizing that the strategy for approaching body care is like as important as the body care itself. And so when we do our unbreakable body training, we focus on training our body, but within that are all of these little sub lessons of how to train and what to focus on and how to approach problems and how to see the world and how to make yourself a better person. Cause I don't really care if you're like super fit, if you're kind of like an asshole, you know? So that's where the unbreakable body encompasses. Um, and we always begin with body, but we spread out from there. So. Beautiful. That's, uh, um, that's one of the reasons I want to talk to you. Cause I like that. Um, how I see your method sort of starting to grow, right? Seeing the, the, the the body not as the sole focus but as a starting grounds for the cultivation of the, the individual in a broader way i also really like the uh you know it was interesting as i was reading your stuff kind of preparing for this interview i was like ah taleb i i, I hear some taleb here right um because that, that word anti-fragility and, and that concept i think is is so powerful um so what i want to ask you is why do you think that the fitness industry and 
sorry, I'll back up for a second here. I've, I've heard your story a couple times about, you know, how you were very fit and you were also suffering a lot and also feeling very fragile. And I really resonate with that story. And I've talked to lots of people on this podcast, lots of people in, during the, you know, the Embodied Movement Summit and heard that story over and over again, right? People come to fitness in order to grow strong. And yet so many of us within fitness end up feeling uh, very fragile. And so what is it about our fitness culture that is, it is, that is kind of making the people who devote themselves to it fragile? Mm -hmm. uh, I'm curious what your thoughts are on that. What a great question. And I, yes, um, well, I have two thoughts and they kind of compete with each other, but that's okay. They're both allowed to live. Um, one is that I think any pursuit, you don't even have to talk about fitness, but I think any pursuit runs on a pendulum or a continuum. And in fact, to go on the full journey and have the full experience, you need to go through the entire continuum. So initially, if you're coming to fitness for whatever reason, um, heavy on the discipline, the willpower, the drive, the hard, the push, the come on, you could do this, heavy on that is what gets you going. And the journey itself, the continuing itself, is that through that, you then start to hopefully um, on the journey figure out where that's not helping you so much anymore. It's like the person who only has a hammer. Everything looks like a nail if you only have a hammer. Eventually, though, if you're wise and you're willing to like explore, you're able to realize, oh, there's other tools. And so that continuum goes through like being extremely tough on yourself and being very focused on outcomes to almost the opposite end where you're like, oh, that's like not getting you where I want to go. And you have to let go and you have to soften and you have to give up control that you actually were using to your advantage before. Um, and then you go, okay, well that's maybe you start to get a little, a little slack and you're a little too slack for what you're comfortable with. You know, you're like, oh, I'm gonna eat in the way I know it makes me feel good. And I haven't been getting my walks in and like, what's that all about? So now you into the next phase of the continuing where it's like, okay, well that was too soft, but where, where can I play with the hard and the soft? Where can I find that middle ground? And like the, um, what is it? Taoists who talk about the middle way, like. Um, Buddhism says middle way, but. Uh, but, Say that yeah. again. It's Buddhism that talks about the middle way. Buddhism, there we go. Thank you. Um, that, that middle way, right? And like, so you have to go through all that stuff because if you take someone brand new and you go, just listen to your body, do just enough. They're like, I don't know what you mean. My body either is saying weird stuff because it like is craving sugar and it's craving lethargy and it's craving what it knows or they're like, I don't have parameters for what that middle ground actually is. And so in, in the one sense, I think the fitness world brings you into this realm of continuum, but the loudest voice and the most exciting, sexy voice is the one that's like, structure, go hard, extra day, you're not going hard enough, like that kind of stuff. And it, it takes a person being seen that that may not be all there is to step into the, the rest of that continuum. The second theory I have around this is that, and, the, and it does compete with this, is that um, someone needs to do that in order to get the engine going. They need to go to be disciplined and strict in order to get the engine going. I'm less committed to that theory than I am to the other one, but I, I still think, oh, there might be space for that to be true too, where 
Um, if I'm wishy-washy, here's a good example. Um, I might need something from Target or Walmart or whatever, like one of those things that you get at that store. Um, I don't go do it when I first think about it. I probably sit with it on my list for like weeks until finally I'm like, oh, there's a coupon. I think I'll go. Or, oh, okay, I need three other things. I guess I'll go now. And I think if you apply that same methodology to like a fitness pursuit or a well-care body, something, health, health pursuit, um, it, you never get going. And so and if that theory is true, then you need the like, let's go. Today I do five days a week or this week I do five days a week. Next week I'm going to try for six. And the, every day after that, I'm going to make sure I do all these other habits that are really good for me. Um, so that's my other theory about why fitness kind of hovers around this like super intense, strenuous, um, focus. So if I can reframe, uh, reframe that back to you, what I, what I hear is maybe the, the fitness industry is giving people something that's very necessary and it's sort of good at, at that messaging, but there's a stage past where that can take you that isn't being served necessarily very well. Yeah, that's where I feel like I fit in because I struggle to be like, okay, here's the thing you're going to do. You're going to be disciplined. So I'm like, well, but that's kind of squishing on their entire journey. Like I'm here to provide discipline and guidance and teaching, but like, this is about you. This isn't about me. Like we're going to take what I have and like apply it to your life. And, and then you're going to make magic out of that. Um, but, but yes, the fitness industry is very good at being like 30 day challenge and drop a dress size in a week and like stuff that is what we all think of when we think of the fitness industry and we owe it to ourselves and to our communities that kind of follow our work or that hire us um to expand beyond that and and to that end i don't think you can do that unless you've gone on the journey yourself and i think a lot of people have gone on that journey but maybe they haven't brought that into their messaging or um, or maybe I'm just not seeing it and it's actually there. Um, I don't know. There's a couple of concepts that, that pop into my mind that I, I, I guess I would like, that, that seem to be related to this and I'd like to see people more broadly think about, but um, my mentor, John Ravake here, friend, he, he introduced me to this Greek, these two Greek words for self-control that have slightly different meanings. There's inkratia and sophrosyne. Inkratia is self-control that requires willpower. And sophrosyne is self-control that doesn't require willpower. So if you imagine two people who are engaged in fitness and they're, you know, they're eating right and they're, they're, uh, you know, they're doing fitness every day. Um, so both of them, you know, maybe wake up and their roommate has a chocolate cake out on the uh, kitchen counter, right? They can both understand that there would be pleasure involved in eating the chocolate cake, right? And they put their workout gear on and they start to head out the door and their roommates playing video games. And, um, you know, they, they know that if they stopped and didn't do what they had kind of committed to, um, they really have a lot of fun. Right. And maybe it's going to be hard. It's going to be cold. They're going to be some physical stress involved in their workout. So one of them has to deal with temptation every time, right? They feel the desire to do those things. And it has a big hold on them, but they use willpower to break through and they continue to do their thing. Whereas the other one can see that it would be pleasurable, but it doesn't have any hold on them. Mm -hmm. it, it sort of just passes over them. So the first one would be someone who's using Increzia, and the second would be somebody who's using Sophrosyne. And 
I think somehow we've fallen in love with the the exercise venkratia as sort of the 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 you know the the admirable characteristic of a of a of a person, right? If you if you can have the willpower to push through, that's what we're really working for. Um, and we don't necessarily treat willpower as potentially a a exhaustible thing. But I think that if you think about it, you know that the person who 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 that temptation doesn't have a strong hold on is far more likely to can be doing it ten years down the line. Hundred percent. I love those words. I, when we finish it, write those down for me so yeah. I can save that. That's really great. Um, I love when there's words like that that I'm like, do we have an English word for that? Um, yeah. I'm with you because that is one of the things I think about in my business as a coach quite a bit because it's in, I am, I am in that state with all of my health practices that where it's willpower without effort. It's easy. It's like, it's the holidays when we're recording this, right? So, um, cookies are showing up and, oh, that would look good. And eggnog and all this like cool stuff. And I remember being younger and in, in the early younger in age, but in younger in my journey as well, where I had to like white knuckle it like oh god okay so we'll, we'll oh it's in the house so what am i gonna do when when like a trade-off like workout for this and whatever um and it took so long to get to where i am now but gosh was that journey worth it because now i can go i mean yeah that'd be good but like, i don't it doesn't mean anything wash over you is a great way to put that like it just oh, okay um or if i decide oh that sounds good i can like pick an amount that will be satisfying, but not to the point where I don't feel well from doing that, you know, or I can, you know, not feel guilt around it or something like that. Or if I miss a workout, same thing. Oh, okay. Well, you know, tomorrow's another day. Um, but that's, I, I try to keep that front and center because I know that to teach that what I experience right now to someone new, um, that again is it's, it does not compute because they don't know how to do it easy yet because you have to build practice. You have to build um, stuff that contributes to intuitive nature. So redefining who you are and not like I'm the kind of person who doesn't do this, like, which again, to me still sounds very controlling and very like I'm trying to convince myself, but really coming into harmony with yourself and who you're growing into being so that you're like, I, yeah, I am this kind of person and this is what I do and this is how I relate to myself and this is how I relate to things that pop up like cookies I wasn't expecting and now they're here and they look really delicious. Like that journey has to be gone on in full. I do not think you can short it, shortcut it. I think coaches who are good can invite situations and questions and opportunities with their client, their customer, whatever you call the person you're working with. Um, you can invite that space for them to come into but it might mean initially that like you help put more parameters around that space so that they can go from being the person who's like it takes a ton of willpower to the person who's like i am here i am at ease i am comfortable even when the cookies show up you know yeah i mean when i was first introduced to those ideas you know what i what i kind of realized was that we should, we have to use Incratia and we should use it, but we should use it to make room for Sofrasine, right? That's where it becomes sustainable. And 
and and I don't think that that's being articulated. I don't think that that as an industry we're sort of saying like, okay, yeah, you know, do your your thirty day challenge, do this, but how are you bridging that to a point where it's not that white knuckle situation? And so I'm curious for you, like as you look back on your journey and and also the way that you've worked with clients, what are those bridges like? So. I think we both agree that there, there's, a, there's places in which you need to, to be able to white knuckle it. And we also need to train people to have that capacity, right? To be able to, to say like, yeah, I, I have the strength to fight through something. I can turn down chocolate cake. I can, you know, I can not stay up till 3 a.m. playing video games or whatever their temptations are. Yeah. But, but how do we help educate people to get past the stage where it requires the white knuckling? What yeah. Helped you. yeah and to go back to a real brief moment to your first point of like you know fitness is stuck in that first part um the old adage you've heard this too the old adage is like well you know struggle sells like mm -hmm. a 30-day challenge sells real well if i do a 21-day challenge tons of people are in for that if i say cool this program, the program itself is four months long. Um, you're gonna do a little bit every day, but it's never gonna really feel that hard. And um, it, you might learn some new things, you might be challenged, but you're never gonna feel really exhausted from everything, um, but change is gonna happen. Like that is the worst sales copy ever by today's standards of marketing. Like a person is not psyched on that until they've gone through enough challenges to go, wait a minute, that doesn't work for me because I do it and then I stop and then I do it and then I stop instead of being consistent the entire time. Um, so we need as an industry, our, I feel like it's our obligation to start breaking that old adage that like struggle sells and that you got to sell sexy, you got to sell 30 days, you got to sell a quick promise um, and really just try harder at learning how to sell what you're trying to teach someone um, in a way that that person goes, sounds good. I'm in for that. I know it's going to take a long time. So to that end, um, there's some concepts I've been working on for a number of years that I've been sharing with clients that were what helped me um, to go on this journey. They'll be in my book that come, that'll come out next year. Um, but to kind of touch on them, the first is a reframe that um, first of all, we don't ever call anything with our body bad. Oh, this is my bad shoulder. This is my weak hip. This is the one that always falls apart. I'm always so whatever, like all this negative talk around our body. We don't do that in the unbreakable body. We talk about areas of opportunity. And so this is always the switch that we make. Instead of seeing a bad shoulder or a problem, this is my problem hip. I'm terrible at mobility, whatever. Um, we reframe that immediately and you start using the language of an area of opportunity. Um, and in doing so, you do a few things. So problems by their nature um, have a very uh, focused mindset, a very narrow mindset and a very narrow objective, solve the problem. And at a surface level, you might think, well, that sounds great because if your hip bothers you, you wanna solve that problem. Um, however, when we move into that narrow focus, uh, we move out of a growth mindset, um, which allows us to have more expansive thought when we're in a growth mindset. So we don't really want to move away from that. And we know that our brain, um, it will always take the path of least resistance. So if I um, give you a problem to solve, the first solution that you come up with will be the one that occurred because it was the fastest for your brain to come up with it. 
It will not likely be the most creative solution, nor will it even potentially be the right solution for what you need. In addition, if you think about solving a problem and you go, here's your problem, okay, here's your solution. You have now pigeonholed yourself into this frame of thinking where, well, we already have the solution. And as you know, when it comes to bodies, sometimes the solution that works for everybody else isn't gonna work for you. And to, so then to preemptively avoid that very big hurdle that shows up when the solution doesn't work, where you're like, well, shoot, now what do I do? Like the solution didn't work for me. And then you shrink even more and you feel even more worried and you feel even more frustrated. You can avoid that entirely by going, hmm, my foot's bothering me today. Okay, that's an area of opportunity. Or if you have a long-standing one, like um, I, I have one shoulder. I'm always the shoulder example. I have one shoulder that like, it's always the area of opportunity. It's always the one that I'm like, oh, you've got something new you're presenting me with that I'm going to need to um, explore and figure out what's going on. Um, so we always start with an area of opportunity and we look at it from that lens. And that way you're able to find more solutions. And that way it allows someone to shift out of that like, rigid focus and into like, okay, there's a bunch of stuff I can figure out here. Now with that kind of reframe of from problem to area of opportunity, um, I developed something called the explorer's mindset. And the explorer's mindset really, uh, I'll just do brief, a brief kind of overview of it today. It allows you to say, okay, I am the explorer of this body. Nobody has ever been here before. Nobody has lived in this body before. Thus, nobody knows how to do this. I'm the one who's going to have to write um, kind of the manual of like how to make this place hospitable for me, you know? Um, just like if you move into a new house, you're like I just did. Um, you're looking around and going, okay, well, what's here? How do I make it work for me? Do I need to tear down a wall? Do I need to hang a picture on that wall? Do I need to turn the heat up? Do I need to have the heater repaired by some professional because I can't repair it myself? Your body care is very similar to that or can be. You have the opportunity to make it that way. As an explorer with this mindset, you are focused on noticing everything and collecting as much data as you can, adding context to that data like, did I do something yesterday to make my foot hurt? Did I change my, did I forget to do part of my like mobility training this week? What changed that my shoulder's bothering me now? And from there, you then can act like an explorer who's trying to figure out how to make a land hospitable. You do experiments and you go, okay, well, what if we plant, think, of, think truly, think about your own, if you got a plot of land somewhere and you're like, let's plant these plants and we'll see if we can grow some food. Next year, you're gonna find out if you were successful. And if you weren't, that doesn't mean you can't grow food there. It means you go, huh, what didn't work? What can we change? Same for being in a house. If you're like, okay, well, we hired the heating guy, but now the heat still isn't working properly. Like what else could be going on? If you view your body as an explorer of this wonderful place that you live in, you are the one that gets to go paying attention to data, doing experiments on that data, seeing if there is an expert that you might need to bring in to like help you out with stuff. And I really feel like this is how someone goes from being a person who follows what someone else tells them to do and lives by a rigid rule set to being someone who can experience the entire gamut of body care and physical training and holding yourself to new goals and standards and knowing when to push and when to back off and really become someone who can solve their own areas of opportunity because they know how to actually do an experiment on themselves instead of being like, I don't know, I guess I'm just 40 now. This is what my knees do. 
you know? So that was a big long-winded thing, but those two frameworks and reframe and framework are really, really helpful uh, from what I've seen in my practice for helping people go from that stage to the next stage. So you talked about two ideas there. The idea that we look at um, what we might consider a problem or an injury, or this is my bad shoulder, as like, this is my opportunity for growth. Or, this is a place that I can learn from. Uh, for years ago, I noticed that like, um, so I've, I've been, uh, you know, in this industry for a long time. I've been, you know, I, I started teaching gymnastics when I was 21. So that's 17 years ago. Um, and uh, I, uh, you know, I've gone through uh, torn rotator cuff multiple times, separated AC joint, torn my Achilles tendon, high ankle sprains, eight severe ankle sprains on each ankle, um, elbow tendonitis, counter malaysia, all, all, lots of stuff, right? And, and I've had lots of people who I've seen come and go. And, and I think the thing that's kept me around is the ability to look at uh, an injury and see it as an opportunity, right? To, and, and I've become, like, I'm really good at helping parkour athletes fix knee problems because I had lots of knee problems, right? Yeah. Uh, I, know, I know a lot about rehabbing an Achilles because I went through that. Um, so I think it was Louis West who said, you know, never waste an, an injury. And what I see you doing there is kind of even expanding that. It's not just like an actual major injury. It's all the little niggling things that we can take that mindset to, that they become places where we can, we can, uh, we can use this as, as ways to sort of make ourselves more resilient going forward. Um, and then, and then um, so just to, to, to go on that theme for a second, like going back to the idea of Enkratia versus Sofrasine, the other concept that came up for me was Mihai Csikszentmihalyi and the flow state, right? Uh, are you fam you're familiar with his idea, right? There's a zone of optimal challenge or, you know, Piaget's, you know, zone of proximal growth. And it's there that we're actually going to grow fastest. And when we, when we increase the challenge above that zone, we're actually going into a state of anxiety that that actually decreases our ability to learn and to grow effectively. And it, it seems like this, this kind of cult of hard work is actually incentivizing us to always be reaching above our, our actual zone of proximal growth, right? Our actual flow state. Um, so I think that's part of it. But the other thing about that, what you said there is that, that idea of the uh, thinking of something as an opportunity is one of the things that Mihai Csikszentmihalyi says in the flow and uh, flow is part of finding your zone of appropriate challenge, your flow channel is getting the external circumstances, right? Right. Like, you know, don't walk into a gym having never lifted weights and put 400 pounds on the bar. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But the other is find ways to see smaller wins. I love that. Right. Like if you, I, I always use the example of jujitsu, you're talking about uh, jujitsu, right? So I, I guess you're a jujitero as well. But if you're, if you're a white belt and you're going in and you're rolling with higher belts, and especially maybe if you're not physically fit or you're smaller or you're female and you're working mostly with male partners, you're going to get tapped a lot and you're not going to tap people maybe at all for a long time. So if you're, if your categories are win, tapped, uh, tap somebody, lose, got tapped, uh, you might lose every time for hundreds of repetitions in a row. 
And that's going to be demotivating for the vast majority of people. So what you have to do is you have to be able to say, what are the small wins? Like that guy got me in an arm bar, got me in an arm bar multiple times before, but I saw it this time and I was able to resist longer and I was able to find, you know, I was able to see new ways to resist, right? Or, you know, from top control, he was able to, to get to his, uh, you know, his finish that he likes, you know, but this time it took him to the end of the round instead of like 10 seconds into the round. And that ability to see, see those, those small wins is what I think you're, that, that's what I'm hearing from that idea. It's like, how do we make the small wins more salient? So we're getting better feedback and we're getting more encouragement as we go forward. Totally. hundred percent. Yeah. You're hearing that right. And, and I want to be totally transparent with everyone listening. I am brand new at jujitsu. My guy rolls and loves <laughs> it. And he's like, Hey, you, it would be probably good for you to learn this too. And I was like, I agree. It looks really fun, but I was always intimidated about going to a gym where it was all dudes. Um, and so we're going to be doing, um, we started, but we're going to get back to it. Now that we move some, some of these online programs for now until COVID okay. does COVID's going to do. Um, but so I'm brand new, but I, the, yes, everything you're saying, I'm like, yep, I've watched enough of that. I've been in enough of that. And <laughs> where I like try too hard because I'm trying to like muscle my way through it, which is not going to work on a, you know, 200 pound guy. Um, but yes, to, to be transparent, brand new, but yes, into the jujitsu thing too. Um, but to your, to what you're just saying, I don't want to ever give the impression that once you learn to how to do these things I'm talking about, where you see the small wins, you see the opportunities, you become an explorer who is always collecting data, which you can then, you're like, if I have data, I can do an experiment, which means the game isn't over. It's not all hope is lost for me. It's like, I have some data. I'll figure out a way to work with that. That doesn't mean that you're always going to do it because we are these very intricate individuals who, yes, we can learn a skill like um, focus or how to find our flow state or um, willpower when we need it in just the right amount. Those skills don't always translate to every situation and they don't always translate to the various states that you might be in. So if I could give an example. Um, so I've taken up hunting um, because I'm very interested in being able to completely supply my own needs, both my guy and I. Um, and this is my second year hunting. My first year, and I'm hunting with a bow, so it's a little different than with a rifle, different challenges, and you have to get very close to an animal. Um, and the first year, I didn't even, knowing everything I just said, and practicing it every day in my, my business and my coaching, my movement practice myself, I did not apply it to my process of becoming a hunter. And so that looked like picking extremely difficult terrain to get into. I mean, if there were, this is like black belt level terrain. It's very hard to get to. It's unforgiving. It requires you to be an expert. Diving right into that deep end, thinking, well, that's what I'm supposed to do. And that first year saw me um, suffering all the time because that's what I thought you were supposed to do. Because what is the hottest thing on Instagram? If you're in the conservation hunting world, it's either, it's one of two things. It's either influencers who are cute or it's, guys and gals who are like crushing it every time they're out there and you're like oh my god they did 10 miles and they do this and they're running after and it's that it's exactly what we talk about in fitness it's one of those two things so i was seeing all that and was like oh it's supposed to be hard it's supposed to be a sucker fest you're supposed to like 
die to like do this, you know? And that was my entire first year. And it was not fun at all. I could, I walked out of every hunt that I went on going, that sucked. I don't, I'm glad I'm done. I don't really want to do that again. And I realized um, after the season ended, that will be the fast track to me quitting and never actually pursuing this route for um, self-sufficiency. And I think that happens to a lot of folks because if something is to your point, if it's so far above that state where it challenges you, um, why, why would anyone want to do that forever? It's very, not only on, it's not even uncomfortable, it's unpleasant and it's demoralizing because you don't actually, it's so hard you can't find a win. And so I went through a year of doing that myself. And so then that lesson was learned like, oh yeah, just because you're good at these mindsets in this other area of life, you're going to need to like remember to cultivate them and these other new things that you take on. And my second year of hunting was a blast. Picked different terrain that was easier to get into. And that didn't feel like a loss because I was like, oh, I'm like, you know, I'm making it too easy now. I'm like, it's easy to get here. And I was like, no, that's the point. Like if it's easy to get here, I have energy left to then l learn the landscape, find an animal, try my best to get close to one to actually get a shot. Like the experience was totally different. And I walked out of that second season of hunting going, I can't wait to do this again. And I think that is imperative for somebody in their movement practice, their physical training practice, the diet practice even, is to be able to be to that, that place you're talking about, to find that place where you, you stretch a little, it's a, a little bit challenging, but it's just enough that you're, you can find flow, you can learn something, you can see the win, you can come out of it going, I want to go again, instead of coming out of it going, that was awful, because who's going to stick with something awful, you know? Yeah. For some reason, I'm, I was listening to uh, um, Josh Hillis who's talking about you know, getting away from the idea of dieting and towards an idea of of, of eating skills, right? Mm -hmm. I was talking about the fact that uh, they're like basically eighty percent of people who try diets fail at it, yeah. and that in general, actually, um, the best predictor of gaining weight is having previously been on a diet. And I think about this, this attraction that we have to these suffer fests. And I, I don't know if this is, this is, we have the same kind of numbers for fitness, but I have a sense that this is, this is what happens here as well, right? People, people take on a problem and it feels, it feels doable because it's time limited, right? 30 days to get, you know, fit 30 days for your bikini body. And, and then they, they go way past their, their zone of proximal challenge and, and they hate it and it's miserable and they tick off their goal, right? They step on the scale, 121 pounds and you know, blah, blah, blah. And then they, they, they go back to the life that they had before that put them in a position where they weren't bikini body ready or whatever it was. Um, and then they, then, and then once then they're depressed because all their gains have, been washed away and they cannot imagine putting themselves through the same suffering again and so we have we have a 30 billion dollar industry in this country around fitness and we have the least fit population in human history and skyrocketing rates of obesity depression um anxiety and chronic pain and it just seems like they're 
we are we're approaching the problem in a way that is contributing to it in the long run in order to create some kind of short-term change that some people are able to maintain but that most people seem to ultimately find uh, makes it harder for them going forward yeah that's a really great point you bring up that it's time limited like i oh i can i can stick it out it'll be over soon like i you um yeah because you can do hard things for a limited period of time and you should do hard things like we're not saying don't do hard things um but it, that's a great point that like if someone's like well, i can just make it through this then then whatever that speaks to something that i talk about a lot which is um this notion i see all the time that folks are thinking it's too late now it's too late it's too late i don't know what too late means but it's too late for them and that's wrong because your body is always responding to the signals it receives. I call it the signal response principle. It simply means every single thing that comes into your body is responded to. Everything you experience, your body responds to. Nothing is ignored from response, which means it's never too late. But there's, to, it's like you almost have to step out of the fitness industry and go, okay, well, where's that narrative coming from? Where, well, now you're 50, it's too late. Now you're 70, it's too late. I actually just attended a talk, a virtual talk, with um, a neuroscientist um, named um, Dr. Eagleman. And he has a new book out, which looks really good. And um, he was talking about how this fascinating study about, maybe you've heard of this, um, where they were studying Alzheimer's and they studied this group of nuns in Chicago, all of whom agreed to donate their brain to science after they died. And they were, um, so they would go and do the you know, autopsy and look at the brain. And some of these nuns had brains that had Alzheimer's. They like, because the brain shrinks and kind of looks different, gets kind of like plaque on it and stuff like that. Um, they had that, but there were no symptoms outwardly. No one who lived with these nuns knew, saw any drop in cognitive anything. And they thought that was really interesting. And what they found was these nuns were, even though they had an Alzheimer's brain, were resistant to a lot of the cognitive decline that we correlate with Alzheimer's because they did crossword puzzles, they engaged with other humans, they did all of these things to continue stimulating their brain. They always were challenging their brain. And so they were able to offset the what was actually happening to their brain, which was really, really interesting. And so I think that's that in and of itself speaks to like continue to challenge yourself all the time. And even if something changes physiologically, you might actually offset some of the more common symptoms that come with that. But what I wanted to get to at this point was someone in the audience asked a question and I thought, okay, yeah, that's a very honest question. And it's very good of them to ask that, but it speaks volumes about the narrative that people who aren't even in the fitness realm yet to have this like gotta go hard sensation. Um, it speaks to where they're at. The question was, well, I'm this age, whatever it was, it was older, it was like 70 or 75 or something like that. Um, is it too late to get started? Or like, when should you start these cognitive drills to offset this stuff? And I was like, what an interesting question, because that presumes that there's a point in time that is the correct point in time to actually start when really and he said this he's like the right time is now the right time is now because even if something is starting to decline 
you might be able to actually offset that. And with the signal response principle and some of these other frameworks I'm talking about, that's the whole point. Like you might already be in a situation that is less than ideal. You might also be in a situation that's catastrophic where you were in a car accident and you are now permanently something has happened to you. That doesn't mean you can't still make influence with whatever you have left for however much time you have left. And so that, so even if you step outside the fitness realm, I go, I think you might be this way in the fitness realm. This like, it's only for a limited time thing. I got to start now. It's got to be hard because prior to that, there's this weird perverse thing where it's like too late after a certain point. And so like, you got to suffer to catch up or you got to get going on it now, but you got to then, like it just creates this realm of like other people thinking fitness is the answer to it, to whatever too late might be. And then they come at it in this whole kind of unhelpful sense like we've been talking about. Anyways, I found that really interesting. And I think that I think a lot of people feel that way where they're like, I'll suffer now because it might almost be too late anyways. So mm -hmm. you're, you're trying, people are trying to make up for it, right? It's like, yeah, you know, I, I didn't do it. I know I've been supposed to exercise since whenever I stopped when I was in high school or whatever. Now I'm 25 and I'm starting to have, see the impacts of a sedentary lifestyle. So I'm going to try to try to make up for it all in the next 30 days. Yeah. Yeah. I want to go back to the other thing you were talking about, which was the idea of, so you're talking about areas of, of, uh, of opportunity and I'm trying to remember the other, the other aspect of that, which was, uh, the explorer's mindset. Explorer's mindset. Yes, thank you. What that made me think of is this idea that um, I, I have this analogy that, that we need to think about the way that we approach physical culture and really actually any aspect of self-cultivation, um, not as an engineering problem, but as a gardening problem. Oh, I like that. Keep going. I want to hear more about this. Yeah. We we are not we're not machines we are ecologies right and you were talking about this idea that that so much of the fitness industry is this sort of idea that you know your your body is 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 a template of a body and that i can give you the template of a program and if you run through that template you'll get a result right it's an that's an engineering problem right there's this uh i've run into this this there's two there's these two beautiful concepts around problems right uh there's uh complicated problems and complex problems. Complicated problems are problems that can have, you know, can be quite difficult, but they have a, a single correct solution, right? So building a rocket and getting it to the moon has a single correct solution. It's not easy to do. And you can, you know, but once you, once you go through the template and you make sure everything's measured correctly, then you get the result. Um, raising a child is a complex problem, right? There's no one, one, um, prescription that's going to get you through that. And so gardening is a beautiful example of a complex problem because there's too many things going on. Like what is the sun conditions? What is the light? What is the soil, right? What is the weather through the course of the one year that you're doing this gardening experiment? And, um, you know, what are you trying to get out of that soil? Yeah. And, yeah. and all those things are, are like, what's going on with your body, right? So, so I could send you a template and, you know, that template's based on my model of, you know, the average customer who's maybe a 30 year old male with five years of strength training experience, right? 
um, but maybe your 45 year old female with zero years of strength training experience. And it's based on, you know, maybe I, I got this, this idea around how to strength train somebody from research on 21 year old or like a college student, male college students, white male college students, uh, <laughs> uh, who, you know, who have no strength training experience and no real history of injuries, right? So like, oh, we found out three sets of, uh, of, of these exercises, uh, three days a week was, you know, the optimal, optimal thing. Um, but maybe you're in the middle of a divorce, right? Yep. So that's like the season of your life, right? And, and part of our role as coaches is to be able to recognize those things and help people see what what's different and what's changing and how they can adapt to it and give them tools. But ultimately, I think what you're talking about is how do we sensitize that individual to the information about what's happening to them? And then I love that idea that you brought up of experiments because every, every year of having a garden is a new year, right? Um, oh God, was it, I'm trying to remember. I think it's Heraclitus. Was it Heraclitus who said, um, one man never steps in the same river twice. So like when you, when you grow a garden, it's never the same garden, right? No, we can try things one year that are not going to work the same way the next year. And, and that's, it's, I call it an ecosystem with the stuff that I teach. So it's like, we're on the same wavelength here. I love the way you're explaining it too. Like an ecosystem by its very nature is always changing and evolving and in fact, one of the things that makes an ecosystem an ecosystem is um, its response to a disturbance. That's actually a fundamental aspect of being an ecosystem is that it will be disturbed and it will respond to the, certain, to the disturbance. And that's why with like signals and responses, I always am trying to teach folks that like, this is the other thing the fitness industry is really good at doing. Um, this will fix that. This is why you have back pain. This is why you're overweight. Like it's, if this, then that kind of thinking. And I get why we do that because we want simple solutions. We want to know, we want to be like, oh, if I turn the light switch this way, the lights go on. But that is so simple compared to the complexities of a garden, a person, an ecosystem, all these things we're talking about. Um, so you're looking instead or learning to look instead for what are the pattern of signals that have contributed perhaps to the response that you're experiencing to your point about going through divorce. Like if you are experiencing whatever else in your life, that is going to change how you respond to things. And so part of why I'm so passionate about building unbreakable humans who know how to be their own caretaker and they don't need me or anybody else unless they want it. Because if you think that a template is going to be the thing that works for you, um, that means either you have to be okay with being disappointed a lot because you won't fit in that template quite a bit compared to how many times you will fit in it, or um, you have to be unchanging forever, which is literally impossible. So it sets you up to fail either way. It's when you're thinking, oh, I'm going to do this program, or I saw pick a famous person. They do that workout, so I'm going to do that workout. Like They also get paid to do nothing else besides get ready for a role in a movie, you know? Um, those things matter. Say that again? I said Ryan Reynolds abs in 30 yeah. days. Excellent. Those, all that stuff is 
And we're okay with, well, maybe we aren't okay with that. I guess I, I've probably been in that shoot, those shoots where I'm like, well, why didn't the garden grow properly? But once you can get over the hump of knowing the garden isn't going to grow the same, even if you do the same stuff every year, and that's how you become a master gardener, is by doing years and years and years of doing that, or you know, anything you grow at home, even if it's a little herb garden or a make your own kombucha or anything. Raising a kid, the way you raise the first kid, I hear ends up being quite different when you try the same things and you're like, wait, they're two different kids. Why didn't it, same family, why didn't it work, right? I, you have kids, I don't. You would know better than me, but you know? Um, allowing for someone to learn how to look around and see everything as useful. Like where we moved to, the soil is different than where I was living before. I'm going to have to figure out how to make that useful. Otherwise, I'm just gonna have a tantrum and nothing will happen because I'll be like, well, it's not the soil that I had before, I'm good. Like, I have an opportunity there and our bodies are the same way, whether you're learning parkour or you're trying to lose weight or you're trying to fix your low back pain or anything else, everything is an opportunity and it's useful provided you're willing to see it as such and then set up a system for yourself where you can do experiments on the different pieces of data you're collecting and look at how to tinker with the soil being different or your stress level being different or whatever problem or thing that you're like, okay, this is the opportunity here for me to work on this. Um, whatever that is, being able to look around you and go, okay, all of this can be put to use for me. I think that's really, really vital. I like the idea you mentioned there of experiments, right? Um, going back to Mihai Csikszentmihalyi and the flow, right? flow state, right? What is the, one of the key aspects of flow is you're getting salient feedback regularly enough to make change right you can essentially like whether a system optimizes over time or not has to do with its sensitivity to feedback because especially when we're talking about ecological systems right if it's not an engineering problem then the effect of whatever intervention um always has to be fed back into the planning of the next intervention and whether that feedback is um is is good quality feedback and is informational to what's trying to change has a lot to do with whether your garden grows better the next year or you know or better as you go through the course of a year and so i'm curious like there's a ton of there's a ton of sort of noise in the fitness industry around metrics. And I think there's a lot of value to having a sort of empirical approach where you're really looking for feedback and trying to find that feedback. But also I think that not everything that can be measured matters. Not everything that matters can easily be measured. And sometimes the metrics that we select, they, uh, they mislead us to what's actually really uh, relevant to what we're practicing. So I'm curious about your philosophy around how do we apply the experiments to get the type of information that's actually going to allow us to create the changes that we want. Yeah, I think that's a, a great point. We, and I love that quote you use. I always love when I get to hit on like, oh yeah, like, there's so much that you can feel and understand and learn that can't ever be quantified. You know, I, it just can't. Um, the notion of being so focused on metrics, I get. And to your point about the engineering problem, that's very well said. Um, <laughs> if the rocket doesn't work properly, 
um, you better be able to measure that before you put people inside and send them to the moon, you know? Um, but we are humans and we have so much to us that is intangible and that is immeasurable. How do you measure the fact that because you do a daily movement series now, it's one of the things I always give my students a daily series. Like your goal is to do it as many days of the week as you can, but this is not a rigid thing where it's like, if you didn't do it, you failed. It's like, Hey, this is great stuff. Try to get it in as often as you can. How do you measure that someone is more attentive to their kids in the evening because they did 10 minutes of like personal care on themselves in the morning? How do you measure that someone's able to focus just a little bit more because they're in just a little bit of a better mood because they did a little something for themselves first in the morning and they feel a little more roomy in their body now? I don't, I think it does us a disservice to focus on measuring so much that we don't it then makes you not even think about this other stuff. But to your point, how do you, you got to know it's working, right? And so what I do with my folks with experiments is that's part of the learning process. When you're going to set up an experiment, you've already collected some data, you've added some context, you understand like kind of the realm you're working in. Um, like if you're on a, having a divorce or something like that, and that's maybe influencing the response you're noticing. Um, but then you're, you're going to be the one that decides this experiment was successful when, and you fill that in. Mm -hmm. And that's a bit of a, it's a little sneaky one that I throw in there because it's always successful. Even if it didn't work, work, it's always successful. But you want someone to learn how to say, I know that I can stop this experiment now because I've gotten enough data to continue on in that direction and keep doing it. It works for me or to change course and to go in another direction. But to be able to say, this is the point when I'll say either we keep going or we stop and we change and we do something different that helps someone project into the future about where they might be able to go and, and think out to going back to earlier about like the brain takes the path of least resistance. The first answer people think of is, the experiment will work when I'm out of pain. Yeah, okay, obviously, but like, not really, because what if your pain's slightly less? Isn't that a good thing? Doesn't that mean something's working? Should you keep going? You need someone to learn to think that way um, if they want to have any hope of getting a beneficial outcome every single time. And my goal for every student I get to work with is that they learn to find a beneficial outcome on every experiment that they do. Um, and, and that does mean that sometimes we try stuff and we're like, oh, that didn't quite work the way we thought it would. Now we know. Now we know you don't respond as favorably when we do this thing, given all these other things that we're dealing with. Let's try something else now. And maybe at a time when you're not going through a divorce, we might try that thing again and it might work a little better for us because you don't have this like overwhelming load of stress that you're dealing with, you know? Um, so those, those two things, like, teach the person, hey, let's think of metrics that would actually make sense to you. And they're not all measurable. How do you know this worked? Okay, when you hit that point, now you get to decide which way you go from there. But then also learning that like, if the one that was successful isn't the one, if that's not the direction you're gonna go, and it's time to change directions, that is still a success. That is, you know more now than you did before. You have tried something and you've gotten some information out of it. And I think that's a win every time. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the big points that Taleb makes in Anti-Fragile is that failure is information, yeah, right? Totally. So we, you, try, you try a program, 
and uh, it doesn't work for you. That's information. Yeah. But but I feel like somehow there's a mindset shift that we need to have as an industry because I think a lot of times when it fails, um, we we like if your program's not working for you, people will blame themselves, or they won't even like they they're so they get people get so attached to the paradigm of how they're approaching fitness that they won't even notice when it is failing for them. Yeah. Um, or won't notice until it's catastrophically failed. And then there's so much information that it's hard to glean the, the, the messages out of, right? And then you throw out maybe many babies in the bathwater, right? Like, um, I'll give you an example. When I, when I, I was what, 27, 26, 27, 28, I was doing parkour and natural movement. And I was also doing CrossFit. And, um, and then I was working a lot. So at, at a certain point I was teaching CrossFit at 7 a.m., 8 a.m., 9 a.m., a couple days a week, 10 a.m., then noon, and then four, five, six, seven, and then I got to teach parkour classes at eight, which was my, my passion, right? So I would basically finish my morning classes, run home, take a nap, go back to the gym. And then between, uh, between one and four, I would, do whatever kind of physical exercise that I was going to do, which was mostly the parkour, but, um, but the people there wanted me to do crossfit workouts. I wanted to do rip a toe stuff. So I was going to, you know, get strong. So I was doing my three, three days a week, three by five, you know, uh, squat deadlift and, uh, overhead press because I was skipping the bench press, but, um, and pull-ups. And then, um, and then they were asking me to do crossfit workouts on top of that because they wanted me to be part of the community. And so, I actually got very good at the crossfit workouts that I was doing, right? I, I did, you know, I had like almost world-class times in a few of the different workouts, but I started gaining body fat really rapidly, which is exactly the opposite of what you expect. And then over the course of the next year, um, I had a series of panic attacks. I, my back, I had a back spasm. And then all those injuries I mentioned earlier, right? Like all of that happened, like the ankle sprains were in my teens, but like almost all my injuries, all my major injuries happened in the span of basically three years. And it was post CrossFit, right? And because like I had ignored all these signals from my body up to a certain point, like any, any positive information basically about what CrossFit might be able to offer was kind of very hard to see. So I'm um, yeah I'm, I just bring that up because uh, I'm, I'm curious if you have any ideas on how how we as an industry can communicate better with people about how to be less attached to the idea and more attentive to their own intrinsic information about what's actually happening. Your story is so common, and I wish it wasn't. I have a similar one as well, and like. And you see it all the time. So when I owned a gym in Illinois, um, it just worked out that I ended up being a hub for endurance athletes. Mm -hmm. And I love endurance athletes. They're real go-getters. And uh, often, they also are doing way too much for what they have actual stores of recovery to manage. Um, but this is, this is not just endurance athletes. It's true for CrossFit people. It's true for lots of industries um, and, and types of people, what you like to do. Um, and yes, to, I'm going to come back to the attachment thing too. So just, I'm going to try to remember to come back to that. So um, 
that speaks to a bigger opportunity that folks face. And I think we all face it um, because that doing of lots of stuff, go, go, go mentality, uh, train hard, always hit it, two workouts, you know, exactly like the schedule you're talking about. Um, that to me, by my best guess, I'm not a psychologist, but my, my, my best guess of watching this for 20 years in individuals and experiencing it myself um, is an act, and not always intentional, but sometimes, but an act of leaving yourself, of being disconnected from yourself. And again, sometimes it's intentional because you have like a life that you hate and a great way to not think about that is to be working out or getting just like obsessive about any habit that you're into. Um, but I think often it's, it's unintentional that you don't even know you're detached um, and disconnected from you, the real you who lives inside, who has a voice, who has a bunch of stuff that you need to connect to. And sometimes that is a big mess to have to wade into. Um, and so by conscious thought or not, um, you can achieve and you can become someone and you can create a kind of a, I'm an endurance athlete. Like you can create that by throwing yourself into other stuff. And it then allows you to avoid who you are and the stuff that you're going to have to face at some point, the stuff you're going to need to deal with. And I know that might come across to someone who's first hearing that as like, well, what you think we're all just like messed up people. Um, yes, <laughs> that's wonderful. Like, that's like, yeah, we all have stuff. We need to like, we need to learn who we are. And I'm nearly 40 now. And, um, it's really true. And I hated hearing it when I was 20. Um, it gets a lot better when you get closer to, to your forties. And I have, I'm in a class with some women who are in their fifties and sixties mm -hmm. and I hear it keeps getting better and better because you, you really peel away everything that isn't who you are and you really settle into all of yourself. The, the things that make you great, your areas of opportunity where you're like, you're kind of snappy when you're hungry, you know, or you're like, you're kind of short about something, you know, and you're kind of tough to be around at certain points. Um, you like learn to embody all of that stuff as you get older. And so um, I think that's part of it that whether intentionally or not, it's a very easy outlet and it's an outlet that's applauded. There's a halo around fitness and it's an unintentional and probably misguided halo. Oh, wow, you did three triathlons this year? You're amazing. Yes, but also they're probably overtraining and they're probably neglecting sleep and maybe some other areas of their life. They may not, but they probably are. Um, wow, you're the perfect dieter. You're always eating the right foods. You're so disciplined. Yeah, maybe, but they also might have an eating disorder that you don't know about. So we have this halo around fitness. So it's an easy place to go and become something that is good, good. Um, so there's that aspect of it. And I think you have to go through a breakdown to go through a buildup. You have to go through a story like yours to break out of that and to find a new way to engage with fitness and your sports and your habits and hobbies. Now, going back to the, um, holding on tightly, the attachment thing, uh, something you talk about a lot, which is, um, uh, and you've probably heard this in other realms of the world as well, is to hold things lightly, meaning you, you do have strong beliefs you do have a strong sense of who you are. You do have a strong sense of commitment to the things that you value and you hold it lightly, 
Meaning you, you're willing to examine it always and relook at things and see how you're engaging with it. You're okay with it if it goes away from you a little bit because you know it can always come back and it's not the end of the world. You haven't lost it forever. In fact, if you think you lose something, if there's something you can lose forever, you never actually had it. And so I know that sounds esoteric and crazy when I say that, but um, truly holding your fitness and your perspective of who you are and your fitness lightly is one of the most helpful things I think someone can do to go from where that rigid controlling, do lots of workouts, come, you know, always be involved with fitness um, to wherever that, again, like that continuum I started with, like that middle ground that is past the point of intensity, no intensity, what comes next? And moving your way through that, one way to do that is to practice non-attachment, to, to hold it lightly and know that it, you're going to die someday anyways, hopefully not soon, but like enjoy what you have while it's here and, and don't try to grasp it so hard that it dies within you, you know? Yeah. Was it Keynes who said strong opinions lightly held? Something like that. Mm -hmm. um, non-attachment is Buddhism, it's Stoicism, it's, and, and, and physical practice that we do can be profound teachers of that. Um, but one thing that came up in, in what you're saying for me was I have this heuristic that every, every transformative practice is a double-edged sword. And a lot of times we don't recognize that, that, that everything that you, that people say changes their life can be abused and can be used in the wrong direction. So, um, and it, and it's not obvious from the outside. Like I had a, a client recently, uh, a student of mine recently who, uh, who lost quite a bit of weight. And like my first reaction was just to congratulate her. And then I had this like moment where I was thinking, maybe that's, maybe I'd be reinforcing something that's coming from a very negative place, right? Like, I, it's like, I need to ask her like, hey, like, like have a little conversation with her and see like, is she really happy? Is she, is she, she is this coming from a sustainable place? Because like, you know, pretty much anytime you lose weight, in our culture, people are going to praise you and tell you how good you look and how great, you know, you're doing, but you know, you could be losing weight because you've, you've learned to love yourself and you've taken on healthy habits, or you could be losing weight because you're absolutely abusing yourself and not sleeping and not eating and, you know, using stimulants and, and, uh, and, and, you know, using cocaine, right? Maybe that's why you're losing weight. <laughs> and, and when you get that, you're getting, you're getting reinforcement to continue that behavior that might be ultimately self-destructive. And, you know, I see it with parkour, right? We always talk about the idea that, you know, doing these jumps, it teaches you courage. But I also see people who have found a place where they feel safe expressing their courage so that they can avoid it in all the other areas of their life where they actually need to express it. Interesting. Very interesting. Even meditation, people, I think meditation more than anything else is treated as a panacea, right? But I know people who've gone crazy at Vipassana retreats. And completely lost touch with her emotions. Yeah. Yeah. So I think we need go ahead, go ahead. I think we need to um to to treat these things in some sense with more respect and mm -hmm. and less as like ultimate goods, right? Like, you know, mm -hmm. losing weight is potentially good <laughs> within mm -hmm. a context. It's not yeah. always yeah, it's I hope we're in the age where this is happening. I think we are. When we do see fitness or any healthy habit 
move out of the realm of a means to an end um, and into the realm of how you exist. To your point, you know, um, weight loss could be a good thing. Um, it could also have a bunch of other underlying causes that are supporting destructive, long-term destructive habits, you know? Um, and going back to what you were saying earlier about like um, the different kinds of willpower, like I would love to see parkour, weightlifting, all of it, the whole fitness movement realm, food included. I would love to see that be wholly adopted as things that make your life richer, not things that allow you to become something like it's like the rich person who's rich in money but has no close friendships and no family who cares about them because they burned all those bridges they're rich but they're not rich i would love to see health and fitness and wellness become something that people use to support a rich life and cultivate a rich life for themselves um, not to become rich in the health and fitness sense of it. They're the skinniest, they're the hottest, they can jump the biggest tree, they can do the most reps, they can climb the hardest rock climb. Like, you know, I would love to see that happen, but that, even that's double-edged sword because there is some value in becoming a parkour athlete. I am a parkour athlete. It's like becomes a part of your identity. Um, but to be able, that's another thing to practice on attachment with, to be able to hold it lightly and say, yeah, I... Um, a part of who I am is a parkour athlete. A part of what I do is rock climbing. A part of what I do is hunting, um, but it's not who I am. <laughs> so in a perfect world, we wouldn't have social media then because what is social media? But the little box of who are you in three pictures? I wanna be able to figure it out. What are you in 67 characters on your bio? And so then you condense it down. And I have gone through this myself. Maybe you have as well where you're like, but I'm interested in other things, but people started following me for this one thing. So how do I share about the other thing? And in real life, hopefully, you would be able to do that with the people you care about. Um, but online, in that persona, um, you become the person who's always out running, who has their medal from their triathlon, who um, is flying to the next location that they're gonna do the race at, you know? They have friends that are in triathlon. You have to be able to like, flow with this sense of I am a rock climber, parkour athlete, tri triathlete, whatever. Um, and I am all these other things. It is not the sole thing that defines me. And to that, you have to be able to have really everything we've talked about over the last hour. So that we've been talking like this relationship with yourself and the practices you bring on and how you engage with them. Um, that's why I think that's as important as the physical practice. Cause as I said, when we started I do not care if you do the hardest workout in the world, if the way you go about doing it and engaging with it isn't working for your life to be the best life that it can possibly be. Yeah. If you're a, if you're a world champion and you're a terrible father, brother, son, you know, right. Right? you can reach, you can reach the pinnacle of success and become a murderer like Aaron Hernandez. Yeah. You know. Doesn't really matter how great he is at touching touchdown passes in the, in the long run in that context. Um, it's funny for some reason one thing that popped in my head when you were saying that is actually in, in Gaelic. I studied Gaelic, really weird, uh, random part of my history, but I studied Scottish Gaelic as a kid. In Gaelic, they don't say "I am a rock climber." Mm. You translate it, it, actually comes out something like "I am at being a rock climber." 
I think that's a, probably a better way to think about how we inhabit these personas, and particularly in the way that we look at social media, because um, the, the other thing popped in my head is Paul Graham wrote this beautiful essay called Keep Your Identity Small. And, and the idea here is that when you, when you attach yourself to lots of different elements of your identity, it kind of weighs you down. It prevents you from having the flexibility to go out and seek what's actually the highest good for you. And it sets up conflicts, right? Because your identity as a parkour athlete can be in conflict with your need to take rest and, 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 and take care of yourself. Or it can be, a, you know, a conflict with your relationships, right? So um, this year has been a really difficult year for me. And, you know, from the outside, it probably looks like a very successful year. But in a lot of ways, it kind of like for me, it almost rhymes with where I was at 10 years ago when I was overstressing myself with CrossFit, right? Um, this year was about taking on more work obligations than I could really handle. And then having to go outside of the ability to listen to my body and pushing myself through things, um, you know, using lots of coffee, you know, using a uh, nicotine gum, using whatever it was to get me through. Um, and I'm proud of some of the things that I achieved over this year, but ultimately it was like, I came out of it, out of the tunnel of it. And I was like, wow, I really, really need to get back to being able to listen to my body. And at first, in the first couple of weeks, it was hard. Like it was, I had become so, so sort of immersed and consumed by work that even when there wasn't that work in front of me, the, the, the neural patterns just kept repeating themselves and the chatter around work and around thinking about the type of work. And it, it was just all consuming. Yeah. And again, you know, I mean, I'm going to like Max Weber's, you know, Protestant work ethic and like the roots of our culture. We, we lionize that, right? We lionize the people who, who work 14 hours a week and I, having just done that, or for, sorry, 14 hours a day, 14 hours a week is not so bad, uh, 14 hours a day. Um, having just done that, you know, what, what I can say is that it made me really blind to a lot of things that were much more important in the long run, right? Like I was, I you, if you work 14 hours a day, you cannot listen to your body, right? Or not generally listen very well to the relationships. And ultimately, like, what is the greater wealth? Right. Um, so that's just a little, I don't know, the, 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 this, this conversation sort of made me want to, to speak to that because I think it's important for people to realize. Um, yeah, it's, yeah, and one of the things that is just like bubbling up right now is, because I'm about to contradict a couple of things I just said um, a while ago. Um, this is why it's so important that you know yourself. There are times when you need to push, when you need to work a 14 hour day because you've made a commitment or you've um, got a newborn at home and like good luck sleeping, you know, you have to handle stuff. Um, there are times when you need to push. And this is something I admire greatly about my, my guy. He is very good at this. Um, to learn what it feels like when you can sense, now is the time to push. I need to go. I need to dive in harder. It's not going to be good for me in the like 
perfect bubble of like you're getting enough sleep and you're eating all the right foods and you're working out enough and you're taking time for relaxation and all of this. It's not going to be perfect, but I know that it's important and urgent that I do it now for this period of time. And I know it won't last forever. And that will get us to this point that we need to get to uh, on the project, on the child rearing, on the journey, whatever. Um, but then to also listen to yourself enough to, and to know yourself, to be sensing yourself enough. Okay. That period has ended. Now we step out of that. And whether that's by putting a, there's a deadline to it, or, um, you just know that like it's a two week or two month or a year, however long the push is going to be. There is times in life when you have to push, you have to bear down and go, this is going to suck, but we need to do it to get to the next thing, you know? Um, and that's why. All this other stuff I was talking about, like, you know, not being so caught up in your identity and not working so hard that you're like, the only way you know how to do it is with rigid willpower. Um, that's why your movement health practices are the greatest teacher to you of you that you will ever experience. Um, and that is the point to me of the health practices because you cultivate that knowing of, I have to push now. I have to do this. And yes, in a perfect world, we would create pro like work projects where um, you have an abundance of time and the deadline is no problem. None of us have done that. I've tried more in the last few years, but in my when I launched Unbreakable Body, I didn't sleep for like three days in the last week. Like it was obscene, um, but that's what had to be done. And that's how I learned, wow, that didn't feel good at all. Um, we're gonna make sure we don't do that. But even now when I have projects where I'm like, I gave myself enough time. We are going to make it in the deadline. And still, I have to be a bit uncomfortable as I go through this. I'm not going to be able to do some of the other things that I was doing in the past, meeting friends for dinner or something like that, you know, uh, because that time needs to go to this work time. So learning yourself so that you can know when the time is necessary to push and when to step out of that push is so vital. Maybe that is like an element of fitness we should be talking about in addition to like how much you can bench press. Like maybe how well do you know yourself should be one of the measurables of fitness that somebody actually prioritizes. I think I might have to think on that. I think that's actually a pretty good idea now that I'm saying that. What do you think? Absolutely. I mean, so I think my the big kind of direction within involvement play over the last few years is this this realization that ultimately what we achieve physically is not that important, but it's more what, what we achieve physically does for us. And that I've come to believe that in fact, physical practice is the most important foundation of general self-cultivation because it's the place in which um, all of our self is integrated, right? You, you cannot go into high level physical practice without being invested mentally and emotionally in it. Um, so the self is integrated in physical practice in a way that uh, meditation or, you know, you know, work, writing, you know, other, other therapy that doesn't bring everything together in the same way. So I think that we can achieve a greater degree of self-knowledge and self-transformation when it's rooted in physical practice than anything else. But I think that our culture of physical practice is very far from understanding its potential and it's limiting us because it sees the body as an object external to the self that we engineer and monkey with and try to optimize mostly for presentation to other people. 
Yeah. That we have to change the way that we look at it. Um, yeah. That's that's the kind of center of, of, of our philosophy. So yes, I agree. Yeah, I love that. And that's, oh, thank God people like us exist in the world. I want more people like talking like this. I hope they're out there and kind of getting onto the, the more the platforms where people will hear them. Because this is a big, I mean, cruise ships don't turn fast. No. <laughs> <laughs> on a cruise ship, you know, but they don't turn fast. So like, I mean, this is like, I'm thinking of like the family member who needs that starting point where it's like, we're solving a problem. We're going, your back hurts. Here's what'll help your back. This is a stretch that you can do, even though the stretch is like the most incomplete answer of all, you know, but it's like a win and it's a step in the right direction. But gosh, if we can get more of that out there, that would be amazing because I'm with you. That physical practice teaches you so much outside of even your results and results that you get physically, you know, um, and it, it lends itself to everything else. If you can do if you can learn to work in the physical practice realm, all the things you get out of that, you can be a better parent. You can um, take on a new challenge at work. You might even be able to start your own business because you've got the like the stuff that you've learned about pushing hard, backing off, using just enough energy, recovering properly, listening to your body, learning the different kinds of willpower. All of those apply to every other area of life. And that is a great point. Like all the other practices of like self-betterment, whether it's talk therapy, meditation, prayer, other things you might do. I don't know. Um, there, are, there's more, um, depth in physical practice than there is in all of the rest of them. Yeah. I mean, was there Nietzsche who said there's more wisdom in your body than all of your philosophy? Mm, yes. We have to, we have to look at the way that we treat the body as being a foundation of a wisdom practice mm -hmm. rather than the body is object. Yeah. So one thing I, w I wanted to just go back to for a second, because I wanted to reinforce what you're saying there is, is because the fitness industry is so struggle oriented, we're talking a lot about finding the other side. And, but I think it was an important check to say, but the struggle is important too. Like it's necessary. We, we don't, you're, the in in Miha Csikszentmihalyi's work and uh, and in uh, Stephen Kotler's work, I can't, I can't remember which one it is, but they talk about the cycle of flow. It's, it's not like you drop into your flow channel, you find your zone of proximal challenge, and just stay there forever. That's that's a completely unrealistic expectation. It doesn't work that way. You're always having to kind of move, you know, up and down within that channel, and you're going to find those places. And sometimes you need to learn the lessons that come from getting crushed, right? You'll learn, you know, uh, I was thinking about your thing about unbreakable and I was like, like, obviously we're breakable on some level, right? Like we're all fragile. We're all, we're all anti-fragile only to a degree, but part of being unbreakable is that you break and then you unbreak, right? Mm -hmm. And I feel like in my, my career, my training, I've, I've done that multiple times. Like I've gotten to a point where I felt like, um, like I'm broken, I cannot be the who, the person that I am. And um, and when I hit that point, like at when you're when you're approaching that point, there's a fear of it, right? There's a there's an intimidation, a sense that like what's on the other side is uh, is an end of who you've been. But if you make it through and you survive, um, then what you realize is that 
you can still rebuild yourself, right? Right, and so like the unbreakable thing is more like, even when I get broken, I'll unbreak myself. <laughs> Absolutely, we are remaking ourselves every single day. Every day, until you die, you are remaking yourself. You are becoming every day. You're not done. We, we tell kids they're done growing. You're not done growing. Um, you won't grow taller, probably. Um, but it is a stagnant life that does not continue to evolve and grow through things. And the only way you grow through things is by trying things. And it is a fool's errand to think you were going to try everything and get it right the first time or succeed the first time, whether it's a marriage, a job, um, how you stick to a workout plan after not sticking to it so many times before. Um, that is the process. I mean, that's, that's why becoming unbreakable is a way of existing as much as it is a physical training program that you could purchase on the internet, you know, like it's the process of, and, and that's, that's the other part of it. Like becoming unbreakable is not stuck to one program. Yes, of course I have a program because I can teach you a lot of really cool stuff, but it's not stuck to that. So like you can take your parkour practice and apply the principles of an unbreakable human and make that an unbreakable parkour practice. You can make that um, triathlon training program. You can be unbreakable as you go through that because you can do your experiments and you can experience something like whoops, you tripped and, you know, sprained your ankle or whoops, you overtrained and you didn't realize it. Now you've got some inflammation in your plantar fascia, like, and it doesn't feel very good. You take all of that and you go, oh, there's an experiment I can do. Now I know something more. And this, this, this ethos that you're writing for yourself of how to care for your unbreakable body and how to exist as an unbreakable human, that is completely unique to you. And you write that ethos every day by going through the experience of living. Beautiful. So I think um, we've reached a, a point where it feels like the conversation has kind of had a, a, a good crescendo, right? And, uh, and, and we can um, come back for another conversation. And I also, you, know, you just mentioned your program, and we always like to, to have speakers of programs talk about them. So we didn't actually go real deep into uh, the specifics of, of like the, the technical or kind of uh, approach of the unbreakable body. Um, but I but I will agree that if you take on those principles um, as a parkour athlete, having you know strong feet, a good foundation, mobile shoulders, powerful hips, um, knowing how to check in with yourself, all those things are going to be really powerful for you. So um, uh, we'll we'll put a link in the show note description to people can check out your ebook and get started on any of your uh, your stuff. I just downloaded the one um, the one that you've got on your. Uh, on your Instagram today and took a look through that. It's a simple little workbook people can get. It's on the Instagram right now and I'm, we'll put a link to it in the um, in the show notes. But, um, and, and thank you for downloading that. That's a simple one people can get started with and kind of start to, um, if they like what they see, they can kind of get into my world a little bit more. And with that, the book will become, the, the big book will be coming next year. So that, um, which is so weird to say that like it's almost next year. Jeez, um, that'll be coming next year. But in the meantime, I also have um, several unbreakable body training programs. But I'm, I'm honestly, I'm really glad we talked what we talked about because like Seth Godin talks, he always says this well, when he goes on interviews, he's like, I don't need to promote the book. I'm going to talk. And if you like it and you connect with that, you're going to like what's in the book, you know? And I love that. And it's really true because 
there, uh, the style of training we use works on building six key areas of our body. They're called the six pillars and they run from strong feet uh, all the way up through mobile hips and strong glutes and a strong torso and mobile shoulders and strong posture. And yes, we do all of that. Um, and yes, and we have different levels of things that any level of participant can, can succeed at, um, whether you're a beginner or not. Um, but what's more important is that everything we talked about, something there catches your attention that makes you go, I would like to go that way because my, my coaching is one of millions that are out there. I don't think I'm a good teacher if I say the only way you can succeed is through me and my program. I am not a good teacher if I do that. Yes, I have a fantastic program. You would probably do well in it. Um, but how do I know? And how do I know it's the right one for you right now? Well, if you liked what you heard, you, it probably is. And you can go check it out at, at my website at theunbreakablebody.com. Thank you. I love that. I, I think we need more people with that attitude in the fitness industry as well, right? Um, I think as, as teachers, it's so easy to to become afraid and have a kind of scarcity mindset around, I have to have all the clients, right? Um, yeah. Versus saying like, I need to find the people who will work well with me, who who we're gonna have a mutually beneficial uh, thing. And, and if I put my message out there, that's gonna, that's gonna resonate with those people. Totally, totally. So Kate, thank you so much. Um, send me any resources you want us to put in the, uh, in the show description. And uh, yeah, it was a real pleasure and I look forward to having uh, more chats in the future. I really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you so much today. That was, that was a blast. I appreciate it, Rafe. Thanks for listening to the Evolve Move Play podcast. If you really like the content we're putting out, make sure to leave us a five-star rating and a review. It helps tremendously in getting the word out about what we're doing. And of course, you really want to support us. You can support us on Patreon. This is a listener-funded podcast. And through your funding, it allows us to have the best equipment and to attract the best guests and build our audience. So we really appreciate it if you do those things. And we look forward to talking to you next time.